You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 54 is Khaki King. She is a virtuoso guitarist. She's put out about eight albums and a couple EPs since 2003. You are listening right now to Pull Me Out Alive from her fourth album, Dreaming of Revenge, 2008. We will be discussing Close Your Eyes and You'll Burst Into Flame from her first album, 2003's Everybody Loves You. And moving forward to Can Anyone Who Has Heard This Music Really Be a Bad Person? Also from 2008's Dreaming of Revenge. And then moving to her current album, The Neck is a Bridge to the Body from 2015. The song is called Trying to Speak To, featuring Ethel, which is a string quartet. We'll conclude by listening to Cargo Cult from her 2012 album, Glow. For more information, please see khakiking.com. So I will have played a little bit of Pull Me Out Alive just to show that you have a singing voice, that you've done things that sound <laughs> like regular music. It's actually very ethereal and it's a cool indie rock sort of sound, but it is unlike anything that we're actually going to be discussing on here. We just wanted to get it out there that it's another thing. Among many things, one of the challenges for me with being a guitar player is always keeping it focused on guitar, but always doing something different. So singing with guitar is a very obvious choice to make. But that song in particular had a very, very strange, very super low tuning on an electric guitar. And it was always really hard to keep the guitar in tune, the intonation. So uh-huh. you know, as I moved up the neck, the chords would sort of go out of tune because it was so weird and so out. But yeah, that was sort of more like, hey, let's try this and see if it works and see if it's enjoyable and fun. And I don't love singing. I don't hate it. I love playing guitar. Like I love it. Don't love singing. And if you were tuning the lowest string or any of the strings way off from the regular, would you actually get thicker strings, you know, that are sort of more optimized for being a low B or something rather than E or Yeah, normally yes, but because of touring and ultimately I should have maybe gone for a baritone guitar with lighter strings, but for this, I don't know, it just kind of worked. The intonation problems actually sort of made it sound cool, and I would really push it, like I'd play really hard, and I, you know, so each chord would have an even like more out-of-tune sound, but it almost just sound like a modulation thing, like an intentional warbling sound. So no, and I think because of touring, I, I was touring with the guitar and playing on the record with a guitar that like I needed to do a bunch of different tunings, so I needed to just use regular strings. Normally, like if I'm talking with a, an artist that normally does vocal work, maybe uh, if they also do soundtrack stuff or something, I'll put a little of that during the opening. For you, we're doing the reverse, that we're doing the vocal thing during the opening, and the rest of it is going to be instrumental. Also, usually, I kind of like to start with the most current thing first to kind of talk about what you're most excited about. But as I was going through these, it did seem like it's just more complicated to talk about the later stuff because it's clearly a progression from the earlier stuff. It is you're <laughs> sitting down with a guitar and doing a thing, but then layering more stuff on top of it and you know making it more complicated. So I thought for our first actual discussion song, we would go back to the first album, Everybody Loves You from 2003. The song that I had originally picked was Close Your Eyes and You'll Burst Into Flame, which is just a pure tap guitar, frippertronic, one acoustic. Do you have a, a few words to say about it before we play it for them in full and then talk about it more? I am a big Twin Peaks fan. Ah. And that quote, the title is a quote from the Log Lady. Ah. So that's pretty much all you need to know. <laughs> okay. 
So when I first heard that, some of the things on this album, I guess it's because you were using the lower tuning. I'm not used to hearing exactly this kind of thing on a regular guitar. I interviewed Trey Gunn, who is a master of this kind of tapping, but he uses, you know, originally a stick bass and then a war guitar, like something that's actually made for this. So what do you yeah. have to do so it actually makes noise when you're just hitting with your left hand? That initial phrase, is that all left hand or is that both that's hands? That's left and right. But it's pretty much you're playing it like a piano. Yeah. At the time I was playing Innovation guitar that my father had got and eventually given to me. And it was an Adamas, so it has a carbon fiber top instead of a wood top. And those guitars just really respond to super low tunings. Also, what I find about those guitars is that they're very balanced and that every note is about the same volume as every other note, which is really great. So I don't have to change my effort as I follow the fretboard and be like, this has to be much louder and this has to be much softer. It's sort of everything just comes out. It's almost like, you know, natural compression. And the low tunings just work. You know, ovations are like, love them, hate them, don't care about them, ignore them. I don't care. I mean, like, I think that the Adamas, like really just the Adamas guitar, which is specifically the carbon fiber top, on a very deep bowl ovation is a very, very fabulous instrument for doing this type of music. So it's just the type of guitar. It's not necessarily how you're miking it. I saw at least one video of you doing something like this where it's just one mic in front of you, just the nice, the standard foot away or so. No, I don't normally don't even, I mean, I mic on records, but I would not mic live on an ovation these days. Mm, okay. Just extra problems. So does that mean there are extra pickups in the neck or something? Like, is there anything special or it's just the, no. the standard? Okay. Just an undersaddle pickup. So in terms of coming up with that kind of gesture, can you say a little about, I mean, is it just, you know, you get in a Zen state with your guitar and fool around with things and there you go. There's the basic motif. Or is there something more specific and illuminating you can say about that? No, that's, that's <laughs> kind of it. I mean, you know, keep in mind, I wrote this song so long ago. I was probably... 20 years old. The record came out in 2003, but I'd written all those songs much earlier. So I was 19 or 20 when I wrote the song. And so what did I care? I mean, it's a very weird song for me specifically, because most of the things that I do are very rhythmic. Like I'm on a click track. I mean, I'm on a like mental click track. I don't deviate a lot. I don't get rhapsodic. I like to maintain an even clip. And this song does not do that at all. This song has multiple parts to it. It has parts where you're very sort of like searching for the tempo. There's a couple of switches where I change up the um, time signature. So it's actually almost an outlier in that regard. But at the time, I was just writing guitar songs because I was bored and weird and college was weird for me. And like, I was into guitar and stretching its boundaries. But like, I, if you had been like, go write a nice guitar song for people to listen to, like, that wouldn't have been it. Like, the fact that no one was listening is the only reason that these songs were able to have a life. I mean, if I knew people were listening, is none of this would have happened. Now you've got a sort of a mixture here of very memorable motifs like that initial one and even more so that the one that you ex eventually about 23 seconds in <laughs> hit on with the harmonics that are just beautiful. But then the transition between those two is you kind of leave the key and were you taking a music theory class or was this purely just moving up the neck and messing around with things? No, I'm just messing around with things. And then this like middle section is insane and doesn't even really, it's sort of like a diptych. Like it's two sections <laughs> of a thing that you sort of smush together. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's a crazy song. 
So no, I was really just fooling around and doing something that felt like, I don't know, it made sense at the time. There are specific things in here. You know, there's a couple things in the way you shift chords that sound very Pat Metheny to me, or that particular section sounded very Michael Hedges in terms of the just that particular riff. Were you immersed? Who are these people? <laughs> Pat Metheny, that rings a bell. No, I was not consciously doing anyone else's vibe. I think that like when you play solo acoustic guitar, you're going to sound like somebody. Sure. I mean, it's just completely inevitable. And when you play solo acoustic guitar in a particular tuning that might have been used by someone else, like it's just, you sound, it's, it's very samey sounding music, especially at a low volume. And the challenge is to find your voice, write a song that only you would have written, even though no one may know it's you. So yeah, I mean, there's always going to be that like, you were listening to this and therefore, this made its way in. And I'm sure that's part of it. But I don't consciously sit and go, like, take this other person's playing, you know. But again, I, I don't know these gentlemen. I'll have to listen to their music sometime. <laughs> they sound like they've had nice careers. No, I'm joking. I mean, I love all that stuff, and I, and I listen to it heavily. Much younger, though. Hedges was a weird thing for me because... I knew his music as a young child, like really young child, like four and five years old, because my father, I mean, I was four years old when Aerial Boundaries came out. So my father was like super heavy into the Wyndham Hill vibe. But then when Hedges was making his like crazy sing-along records, I was sort of autonomous enough to be like, I want to listen to Michael Hedges. And that those records were just crap. So I was like, why does anyone like this guy? So it wasn't until later, unfortunately, that I was like, oh my God, this is genius. And also like, I know this song because I listened to it a thousand times when I was four years old. But, you know, listen, like, I don't, I, I mean to just say that, you know, we were all artists and there's no experimenting is not a crime. No, certainly. And, and the fact that you're, figuring out how to make your fingers do these things, being able to recreate an effect that a guitar genius like that has come up with is hugely satisfying. I imagine watching another interview with you where you're talking about how you were, especially at that point, really just discovering some new thing you could do with the guitar, which of course you do that by looking at other people largely of like, oh, is that that's yeah. possible? I didn't even know I could reach my hand over there and whap that thing you know, while playing. <laughs> or just the fact that you're playing it like a, a piano you know, if you were playing that riff on piano, Jaws would not drop in that way because you're just da, 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 like, okay, well, that's fast. But the fact that it's doing it on guitar, because that's a very rare thing to see, then it just makes it all the more impressive. I know, but really, you're just like, guys, like, what if this was a piano? Like, <laughs> like MBD, right? <laughs> so this is extremely through composed. And I always wonder with this kind of thing, what your notation system is, or if you, it's just a matter that you just play it enough when you're writing a song like this, what actually goes on a piece of paper to remember this? Or is it all just having a recording device next to you or what? None of the above. <laughs> okay. For me, it's playing it over and over. You know, it's like what is left the next day? If you've played guitar all day long and you have like come up with some riffs and you've felt, oh, I've, I've been writing and this is cool. But like the next day, what's actually there? What has stayed with you? What has stayed with your fingers? And that's the stuff that you keep. So it's just about playing it over and over and over. In those days, I played constantly. Like I just played all the time. And so I didn't have to write anything down. And again, like I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm going to make a record. I'm going to do a tour, like none of that. So it wasn't like 
pressure to retain the composition. I mean, also for me, I wasn't improvising at the time, but I also wasn't stuck with any particular structure of a tune. So I like to say that, you know, when I record a song, it's really a photograph of that song that day because it always changes. It wasn't that way a few weeks before and it'll change a few weeks after and not radically, but there'll just be things that are different. So I don't know. I never had any need to write stuff down. Occasionally, if I come up with something that I really like and I don't have that amount of time to, you know, I'll just bring out my, at the time it was not a phone, but it was something that I could use to record. And now it's my phone and just grab the little hook that you like. And then maybe it's a keeper, maybe it's garbage. As a consequence of that, do you feel like at all the different performances of this, is it pretty much note for note exactly the same with the exception, of course, of being able to be expressive about the tempos or whatever like that? But is there improvisation ever going on in terms of getting from one section to the other? That really depends on like the kind of tune and, and how much the song itself allows for that. Like with Close Your Eyes, it's a little bit more mm-hmm. structured because it's so complicated and there's a lot of like, I just have to focus to kind of get through it. With other songs, there's so much room to just go wild. But also like, keep in mind, like opening yourself up, improvising while you're also like holding down a beat and a bass line and a harmony. Like it's not the same as like, I'm on saxophone and I'm playing a melody and I can just stop playing because the band's behind me and you know and then I'll like play again so it's a different beast but something like close your eyes would it's just a little trickier that said there's a lot of like those weird lines those walk-ups those are always different like those never make any sense because it's just kind of like hitting ran you know yeah that's like never ever the same I mean and if it is it's coincidence so that makes more sense that it really is sort of the parts that sound memorable really are the ones that are memorable for you. Those are the ones that are exactly the same every time, at least note-wise. But getting between those, or I would think even just how many times you do something before going on to the next part, like does that kind of thing vary a little bit? Oh, yeah, all the time. And just whatever the audience. I mean, if the audience is like stuck up and <laughs> annoying and you just can't wait to go home, then you play a shorter song. And if the, if the audience is like super in and they're just on the edge of their seat and they're so with you, then you like give them back that energy. So it it has a lot to do with, you know, what you're getting from people. Well, and this one has that crowd pleaser thing. You know, I just, as I was going through the album, I just stopped and, you know, made a note of this one because it got especially blistering in a way that's, you've established the riffs and now we're just going to reintroduce that riff and then play it faster and faster and faster and faster just to... Yeah, I don't know. Why not? Can you believe I played? So I played this song on Conan O'Brien. I can't. Can you I believe can't. that people that are up that late. <laughs> but I mean, that is just—it's so weird. Like it was so weird to be like, "Would you like to play your crazy song that makes no sense at all and has bars of music that are like completely not okay on late night television?" That like is the realm of pop and indie artists who sing. and are, I mean, like, I wasn't singing. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just playing a nice song on the guitar. I was like, I'm going to play a weird, weird song on the guitar and not sing. And you guys are just going to have to deal with that. And they didn't pressure you to shorten it to two minutes or anything like that. They did. Oh, yeah. They totally oh, were they like, this okay. has, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, they always do. TV's like, please play as little as possible because we have commercials. Okay. Well, let's get the second song out there to move forward in time. So this is Dreaming of Revenge, the fourth album, 2008. Can anyone who has heard this music really be a bad person? This one you picked. Tell me a little about that project and and why you picked this song and give some introductory words. So yeah, it's a big jump from 2003 to 2008. 
as far as what I was doing and the progression. But the records I was making, I was making on my own. And I would, for instance, bring in a drummer. I mean, like, I didn't have a band is what I'm saying. So I think on this song, my friend Dave Troit played drums. I would play everything I could other than the stuff that I was like, and I played drums a lot on a lot of my songs, but like, I'm not a great drummer. So if I wanted a great drummer, I would get someone great. But I think I played everything else except obviously the strings, which were arranged by my friend Yuval. So the title, it's funny, I guess I really do, like I watch a lot of television and films, but the title is from this amazing movie called The Lives of Others. It's German. It came out probably close to 10 years ago. And it's about the Stasi secret police spying on people in East Germany. And in the course of this story, this person dies and a person plays some music that they had played on the piano. And the quote is, can anyone who has heard this music truly be a bad person? And someone is listening. And it's this turning point of the movie, the Stasi secret police guy who's, you know, spying on these people. It's the moment that everything changes for him and he becomes their protector. And it's such a powerful, powerful moment. And I knew that that would be a song title for something that's like very big and emotional. So the song is very light in the beginning, gentle chords, gentle little like dyads, I think, moving back and forth on the guitar with some drums. And then it has this like epic end. I think that that was where my mental health was at the time. Like I was ending an, another relationship and stuff was hard. And like my career was in this really strange, where do I go now kind of state. And I was trying all kinds of different things. I felt like I was a toddler again, where like they just had these huge emotions and they just have these temper tantrums like that's kind of what happened at the end where like my emotions were just getting the better of me and so I think that that's why that song sort of begins the way it does and ends the way it does
Most obvious thing that jumps out is just the layering, that it's not only you playing, but your, well, now electric part. Is it basically the same technique if you're using electric or steel string acoustic in terms of this, this kind of riff? Yeah, I wouldn't play it any differently. All right, so you're still doing two-handed taps for da-da-da-da-da-da, or, or are you playing it more conventionally? I mean, I don't tap much. I just tap on television. Okay. Because it looks good. And then you've got the atmospheric sort of Ebo-ish overlay. I saw your documentaries that you made on YouTube, your little uh, vignettes yeah. about this album and the influence of Malcolm Byrne, your producer, who was the looked like the second in command for Daniel Lanois on many of those very atmospheric, like the Bob Dylan 88 album and stuff like that. Yeah, Malcolm had a huge influence on this record. Like, absolutely. And is that like a talking drum or something at the beginning there? You've got these little tiny percussion things. I think it's just mallets on toms. I think I did that. So again, I guess the main riff here, the ba da 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 you know, it's a much more conventional, really carries you forward. And again, through composed again, that you establish that. And then, well, let's kind of do basically the same chord progression, but put a, a lead line over that. And then kind of like the last song, you leave the key a little bit, go through these series of 
four measure, eight measure sort of gestures. So you can keep the same groove that it's been going, this, this waltz groove, but through a series of different core changes. Can you say a little about, again, how this was put together, how this is different in terms of your technique of composition here than from the last one we heard? Same idea in terms of just playing something over and over. But I think the ending was more of like a studio creation. So in terms of the opening riffs, all like all kind of the first half of the tune was definitely written most likely on acoustic with me just being able to play it over and over and keep the things that I liked. And then the second part, I remember kind of going, okay, like I have this idea, but I have to figure out how to really produce it rather than just play it. You know, and Malcolm was all about getting keyboards all over this record, which, you know, is incredible. Or it's an, actually an organ sound that sort of does that transition. And then I can't remember like what point it was that we decided to do the string arrangements for it. We probably had put together the tune all the way to the end and realized that what we really wanted was some strings. And I think that the strings just change everything for me. Like it just takes it to that next level of like cinematic despair and insanity and joy and love and all of it wrapped up into one thing. So I think that we had done the whole track from one end to the other. My buddy David played the crazy drum stuff that you hear just like smashing. Probably didn't have a crash cymbal. It was probably a ride cymbal that he was just like smashing the crap out of. And then layers after layer of stuff. And then we were like, let's put some strings on this. (laughs) So it was very collaborative between Malcolm and I. The ending is really more about just the big feelings and less about how great a guitar player I am. That whole record of Dreaming of Revenge was much more of a studio creation. Like I arrived with an idea of what I wanted to do. And Malcolm was like, let's not do that. Let's try these other things first. And thank goodness. Right. So it's a full like minute and a half at the end where definitely you can hear the rest of the song is guitar led. Here it's almost that you're playing a part among other parts and that it seems like it's a little more driven by the strings there. Although you say those went on last. So it's the organ that was actually driving it at the time. Probably. Yeah. And then you've got that big, I thought it was an interesting choice of sounds there where you, the swirling organ gets introduced and then there's a kind of big bomb, you know, that's a synth. Yeah, it's synth bass. It's not like the lowest, deepest thing you could come up with. Like it's just a very effective low to mid range timbre that's not anywhere in the rest of the song. <laughs> yeah, there's no bass up front. The front is actually really open. It's some washes of textural stuff guitar and drums, I think. It's actually far more open than I than the end. <laughs> Do you find that more often than not, that just the fact that you have drums on it often means, well, if you put drums, if you're going to have the kick drum in there, you have to put bass in there as well. Just because convention, fill up the... But it seems like with your style of playing, you don't want to obscure what you're doing. Like You may even have your low strings tuned down. You're probably already covering that range more or less, at least there are gestures in there that you don't want to cover up. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just don't need it. If you put a shaker in a song and you have the shaker from beginning to end, the shaker disappears. It just becomes part of the background. If you only have shaker during like one quiet part, then it's this moment that's interesting. And so much with, you know, I think bass is, is very similar. Like, I love bass. I'm like, as low as you can go, please. But you only hear it when it, you haven't heard it for a while. And I think that goes for everything with mixing a record is like, if you just played everything and laid it all out and that was your track, then you wouldn't really hear the guitar or hear the electric or hear whatever, all of your ingredients that you're mixing around. 
So it's important to lay back on just about everything you can so that when those things make entry, they really, really are powerful. So maybe we should just get the third song out there as well, and we can keep referring back to this as needed, because this is sort of yet more progression with more prominent, more arranged strings. So from the most recent album, 2015's The Neck is a Bridge to the Body, trying to speak part two is the one that you had leaned forward. I Trying to speak part one is a very frenetic, is one that jumped out at me initially, but part two is a little more, it's definitely self-contained. It's a little longer. It's a little more structured within it. Can you say something more about this apart from the visual aspect of the project, which you've talked to plenty about elsewhere. I'll, I'll link folks to that. But <laughs> It's really hard to talk about the neck without talking about the visual project because I can't really separate the two. The record would have never been made. I mean, this record is not normal and definitely not something that I would have put out on its own ever. I mean, I promise. So the record is definitely a companion piece to the visual show. Which we should then describe briefly then for folks that, so it's that you've got this floating white guitar that you're playing. You've got a screen behind you, but the star is that what you've got cutting edge projection techniques that allow visuals to happen right across the entirety of the guitar, including where your hands are. And they're very choreographed and changed from song to song. And it's just really goddamn cool. <laughs> is that, that accurate? Thank you. That was great. That was actually the best summary ever. Yeah, it is goddamn cool. The projection techniques aren't all that like crazy cool. They're just a little know-how allows you to to get it done. It's a pretty overall technically, I'll just say organized and compact show. And they make these things called short throw projectors. So my projector for the guitar is actually about three feet in front of me. So the throw is really steep. Like it kind of throws, you know, sends light straight up at the guitar. So my hands don't cast much of a shadow. Like I have to get about two to three inches above the guitar before you get hand shadow. And there's not much of it. So it looks astonishing. And I think that it's relevant to this piece we're doing because it very, very much was another evolution in playing guitar for me. It wasn't like, I want to do something that's completely out of my wheelhouse. It was like, I want to take the guitar another step forward. That was my goal. Projecting onto the guitar while playing, I didn't know if it was possible. And once I knew it was, I knew that the guitar would still be the main focus and be the centerpiece and tell the story, which is what it does. So it's still really, really, truly the guitar's story. And in this format, my relationship with the guitar and my, by the time I was like in my early 30s, I was a bit like, what do I do now? And the guitar was like, let's do this. <laughs> so it became really clear to me that I'm not calling the shots and I'm not really leading this. I'm not a master of the instrument and I don't have any, like I have very little power as it turns out. And the guitar, the six string acoustic guitar is just, it takes you by the hand and like leads you. I mean, you pick it up, you put it in a nice tuning, you, you treat it well and you just play and it sort of is like, let's go to here and this chord after here. And maybe it's just like my relationship with it has become, it's gotten to that level. So this piece honors that. I mean, I am very much in shadow during the entirety of the performance. So that said, with regard to trying to speak to, there is a narrative. The guitar wakes up on its own in the beginning of the show. I'm not even on stage. There's all these lights and colors and sound that's running. I enter the stage as like, I'm the guitar's facilitator, assistant to the mad scientist, etc. And then the show builds in complexity 
from that point forward. So there's percussion and black and white images. And then the first note you hear is the first color you see and so on and so forth. And so trying to speak one is, this is not something the audience needs to pick up on, but it was just something, it was a framework upon which I could hang all of my ideas in my show. Trying to speak one is where the guitar attains a higher level of consciousness and learning, really. Like it starts to be able to do math and it starts to be able to comprehend geometry and space and structure. And so that's kind of what's happening with trying to speak one, which is why it's very like, it's like thinking. And then once the guitar has been fully realized, almost humanized, the next step is to take on, you know, on every good story, the hero takes a hero's journey. So the trying to speak to is the hero's journey. And what you see while you're listening to the music is actual postcards from fans that were written to me. And the postcards are being projected on the guitar. And behind me is just images of traveling, like from footage that I've taken over the years. And then there's this whole other thing of like dance notation, which is kind of just cool looking. So that is the introduction to trying to speak to. Like it's it's a hero's journey and the music tells this story of like now, it's really just like, here we are and now we're going somewhere.
you were saying the waking up part is the beginning of the show, not the beginning of this song, this rubato. So the beginning of the track two I'll mention is actually a bridge between trying to speak one and trying to speak two. It just comes up on the second track, but yeah. And it's actually a moment in the show where the lighting changes, things shift, and we prepare for what's to come. Taken as a standalone, I mean, it works really well as an introduction that then comes back at the very end of the song with more stuff layered over it, of course. But you know, in our context, this is kind of a callback to the songs on your first album, this intro before it gets going. It's a solo guitar. It doesn't even stick to one tempo. It's that I, I looked it up. That's rubato, where you kind of go really fast and then slow back down and then, and you do that every phrase. Can you say something about, again, the chordal vocabulary here? I'm hearing somebody who is very deep in the thick 70s jazz school. I don't notice so much when you're writing vocal tunes, say, using that kind of chordal vocabulary. So I'm, again, is it just that you're just looking for new and interesting things to do with your, your hands and this jumps out at you? Or is this kind of what you wake up humming? You know, again, this record was very different in that I was writing totally different concepts in mind. So I, for the first time ever, was not just screwing around on the guitar and seeing what was fun and what was not. I mean, I was really writing with a lot of focus. So the tempo was very deliberate. Like it's really kind of like if you're walking at a brisk pace, that's the tempo. So those were specific choices made. And, you know, again, like a very giant departure from everything I'd ever done before. This was a real challenge. I had very strict limitations on my tuning. So I only used one tuning for the first part of the show and then tuning for the second part. So I had to be in open D minor, which is the tuning I used for the first half. So I've got my tuning, I've got my pace, and I have my start, right? I've got this... just open D minor chord, just arpeggiating it and setting the pace. And that really carries the tune. I wanted to add strings to this. I wrote these strings myself and they were played with an ensemble string quartet called Ethel, who I've done a lot of work with in the past. But the song wasn't strong enough on its own. I would have had to differentiate things a little bit more or I would have had to orchestrate it. So I chose to add strings that give a lot more to the tune because on its own, it's a little boring after a while. So to spice it up and to make it interesting and to make it something that is listenable over time, I added the string quartet. And at the time of writing it, I was still kind of new to writing for strings. I mean, let's face it, like there's so many things that a violinist can do. It's really hard to like step out of nowhere and figure that you can write for something and be super specific. But luckily, Ethel is very good at filling in the blanks and being like, I think what you need here is a trill, or I think what you need here is, you know, ponticello, and all these sort of like Italian things that I don't know anything about, they can like do that. So I was very grateful to them for coming and laying that down on the record. So when you're working with them, I mean, obviously that's four different people. What does that mean when, <laughs> is it the violinist in particular that is putting forward an idea, or is it Ralph or Dorothy? You know, kind of who runs the show in terms uh, of... Yeah, it really depends. Um, it depends on who's playing what. Dorothy, there's a little sort of cello solo in there and Ralph was like really hard to do that like really hard to make a solo on the cello sound good in the context of other music so like you're still playing guitar and you want this cello solo to be quick and also come out and this is a, a bass instrument and like the way I'd written it was very complicated and even though Dorothy can is so amazing and capable of playing it perfectly it's not about that it's about like the sound and the context so they helped me make that sound better but I think it was Ralph's suggestion so you know like they're a total unit they share a orchestral brain that's 
how string quartets have to operate. I mean, they're like, okay, you bow this way, I'll bow this way. They glue themselves together. So a lot of times one person will point out something on another person's part and then adjust. Okay, I knew it was two of them had run it since the beginning, and then the violins have swapped out here and there. So I didn't know if that was, it was kind of the viola and cello's thing. (laughs) Because of that, Ralph and Dorothy kind of have the, like, they're the mom and dad, and the little kitties are like, can I, can I? But Kip Jones is an amazing player. We actually played this song together when I performed in Minneapolis, which is where he lives. So he's like always a very interesting contributor to their sound and to what we've done together as a group. So yeah, it seems much more elaborate use of strings here than in the previous song is that just because again this interactive nature of the fact that you were the one primarily doing the arrangement but then the interactive in the studio nature of it whereas it looked like from can anyone who heard this music that it was a friend of yours pretty much wrote the arrangement i saw at least in the video there was sheet music being passed right you know it wasn't yeah yeah somebody singing at the violin player do this here and now we're going to record the next two measures i wrote out all the sheet music my skill in that area has improved vastly and i've actually written a lot of stuff for strings in the last few years but that's like an infinite level of knowledge just forget it you never stop learning how to to write for other people but it's gone from like a painful awful task that just makes me feel humiliated and gross into something that's like oh i'll just whip you up a few string parts like NBD. Well, I noticed like Anthropomorph has horns on it. Where Are you approaching that similarly that you're, if I can write for a string section, I can write for a horn section, or is that just a totally different animal as far as those players in the studio? No, no, actually really similar, but that's also, it just depends on what you want to do. If they're going to come in and do a session that you're paying for and you need to get stuff like, you know, let's get this done. You need to put something on paper so they know that like there's a section A and section B and like let's redo section C. And so they can make adjustments according to a framework that's already laid out. I think the horn player was Dan Brannigan, who I've worked with on every record for years and years. And you just say, Dan, play this line. Like I think I maybe had put the line in there on something else. Like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, that's all over the guitar and et cetera, et cetera. But no, he's the kind of guy that just comes in and you just hire him to do his thing. I just didn't know if this had given you the taste for orchestration such that we're going to see Khaki backed by a 30-piece orchestra for the next album or something like that. Where just <laughs> Well, you know what? You should just, just hang tight because you just might get what you ask for. Cool. And then, yes, and then once you do that, then you get in the studio and you combine the traditional orchestration techniques with the uh, Malcolm Byrne sort of pick up anything that's nearby and add reverb to it, and it becomes a new extra sound. It's so good, right? (laughs) So we could just do the introduction to the last song, which was Cargo Cult from Glow, 2012. Cool. Probably, I think, your best kind of overall chill-out album. Glow's a very special album for me, definitely. I think that it was like the culmination of everything. Like I finally got it right. I finally got to do what I'd been trying to do for so many years. Awesome. And what about this song, Cargo Cult, in particular? It totally works as a solo guitar song. It also works as a solo guitar song with the addition of foot percussion. So the kick drum sound you hear is actually a boot on a wooden briefcase. And in addition, sometimes I'll tape a quarter to the heel of my other shoe and like put some bells on. So a lot of what you hear in the recording, I can recreate somewhat live a little bit. It's an interesting song, and I think characteristic of that album, I was, in the past, I had either been, like, solo guitar plus a few things, or, like, just nothing. Like, just really try to keep it to solo guitar, or, like, electric guitar with everything. And this was me allowing the acoustic guitar to have a lot of accompaniment and not being afraid of that. 
and with, I think, really great effect in the end. Well, then here's the song, Cargo Cults. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. That was a cool one. 
And per my question at the end, her new album coming out September 22nd is Khaki King with the Porta Girovole Chamber Orchestra live at Berkeley. So check out that and her other music at khakiking.com. If you enjoyed this, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com for more episodes. Please subscribe. Please give us an iTunes rating. If you'd like to suggest a guest or suggest yourself as a guest, you can email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I encourage you to go like or follow our Facebook page or look for me on Twitter. You can hear my music at marklint.com. And Nakedly Examined Music is part of the Partially Examined Life podcasting network. Check out my other podcast, The Partially Examined Life at partiallyexaminedlife.com, as well as FIFIC and Combat and Classics, our other network members. Finally, if you enjoy this, you would like to hear more, you would like to support the efforts, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. But most importantly, keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Linton Meyer signing off.